As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. A vast sprawling network of intercontinental activity on a highly diversified scale that controls the lives of millions of people in the most widely separated parts of the world, manipulating whole industries and exploiting the labor and riches of nations for the greedy satisfaction of a few. That is the definition of imperialism by Kwame Nkrumah. And today, joined with me, I have the anti-imperial queen, Yara. How are you? And welcome to The Malcolm Effect. Thank you. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. So all things imperialism, um, again, people, as I mentioned before, I've been able to, I've actually been blessed to come across paths with so many like deep thinkers and Yara on Clubhouse was shutting it down in all the rooms that I was in. And I'm like, yes, then if I'm benefiting like this, the rest of the world is to benefit like this. So thanks for coming on straight into it. When we say imperialism, what do you understand from that? And how do you come to explain what that means? Well, first of all, thank you for that, that great introduction. <laughs> you know, I'm glad that my addiction to Clubhouse is, uh, is allowing me to connect with the new folks and <laughs> hear all these great perspectives. Yeah, so I think imperialism is one of the most sort of misunderstood processes. So many people sort of brush it off or understand it as being kind of like foreign policy. Like if a country has foreign policy, therefore it's imperialist. And so I really, I'm really grounded in Lenin's understanding of imperialism uh, as mm -hmm. the highest expression of capitalism's demand for or, or need for new markets, right? And so it's this... Mm. It, yeah, so it's this product of capitalism's inability to stay stagnant and capitalism's requirement for never-ending growth. And I think that Lenin's also the, the five stages of imperialism that he, he offers, right, which begin at monopoly capital, moving to finance capital, and, you know, then the exporting abroad of, of finance capital, particularly in the global south. And, you know, the fourth step being the formation of what he calls the internationalist monopolist capitalist association, right, which ultimately is like the division of the world among imperialists. I mean, all of mm -hmm. these things are so crucial in understanding, you know, what is imperialism? Who is imperialist, right? We see that that word thrown around. I mean, I, I heard the other day someone say something like, well, what, you know, what about Cuban imperialism? And I'm like, well, wow. that, that doesn't make sense because you need like a working <laughs> definition for imperialism and you need to understand the economy of a specific place uh, before you can call it an imperialist nation. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think when we understand capitalist accumulation and we understand the workings and technologies of colonialism, we just find that imperialism today is just a manifestation of that. And we understand that capitalism being pervasive in the way it is, it needs to continuously expand. It needs to find cheaper markets, it needs to find cheaper labour in order mm -hmm. to keep its system going on. So I think when we understand that, it's like when we, this is why I find Nkrumah so uh, important of a thinker, because I think I'm yet to find, maybe you can correct me, a thinker that detailed the workings of imperialism on the continent as great as Nkrumah. I'm yet to find someone. He literally understood it and explained how it works, explained, for example, he said, even when we talk about like global work and solidarity, we felt, we're not fell, but he, he noted that 
the kind of upward social mobility of the, let's say, working classes or middle classes. And again, I'm not trying to overstate that point, but, you know, this the kind of welfare reforms that were begrudgingly granted to the working classes in the imperialist countries on the imperial core was a result of the expanding market. It was the buying of raw materials at a cheap labor at a controlled price by the IMF, by the World Bank, manufactured in the West and then sold back to Africa. And that accumulation allowed for the West to develop or to allow to have allow, like let's say for the NHS in the UK, for example, or other concessions that were made in terms of welfare. Do you agree with my assessment on that? Or do you want to correct me? Do you want to come back on that? <laughs> no, I, I completely agree, right? And I think I think that's why, you know, anti-imperialism is so important because you know, we we really need to we like we need to understand when we say something like, for example, one of the wealthiest nations on the planet, right? Like oftentimes yeah. you hear folks on the left say, "Well, America is one of the wealthiest nations on the planet, and it can't afford to give its citizens healthcare," right? And like that's a true statement, but we need to even go one step further. Why mm-hmm. is America the wealthiest? country on the planet? What has allowed Mm -hmm. the United States to amass the wealth that it has? And the goal should not be you know, the redistribution of America's wealth only to American citizens, right, which would be sort of like this intersectional, you know, progressive imperialism of some sort, which yep. I think some some soft Dems in particular look to the Nordic model and, and, and that's what they want. But rather, our goal should be the like complete, you know, redistribution globally, right? And I think exactly. Huey Newton says this, says this best when he says, like, you know, the fight uh, as our fight as internationalists is to return the wealth that America has robbed to the whole world, right? And so, and and yeah, you know, Nkrumah's piece, especially, like I think his analysis on neocolonialism, neocolonialism is so important because what it what it offers us is it it shatters this illusion that you know, we're living in like a post-colonial world where these nations have now full autonomy, right? And and he says clearly, like, there is this illusion that you have these independent states, but really their entire economic and political systems are directed completely from outside, oftentimes from the former, former colonial, you know, the former colonial country, but not always, right? So sometimes you have Mm -hmm. the passing, the passing along. So something that was previously sort of called someone somewhere that was previously colonized by France may, may now mm-hmm. be kind of be run by American imperialists, right? So I think yep. Nkrumah's analysis is, is really important. Absolutely. And what I've, I've been quite dismayed, actually, you know, the room we were in the other day when I came in and I eventually kind of um, spoke and you were speaking before me, I think it was to do with Cuba. I was quite dismayed. And the reason why I even came to that room was I think the analysis or the kind of, not even analysis to be honest, not even analysis, it's not even vibes, it's just bad vibes and callousness of the assessment of imperialism by, I'm going to say this, I'm going to uh, shoot my, kind of point it towards you people in, the, in America, by the leftists of imperialism has been quite disappointing. Have you noticed that as well? It's almost as if they don't, I don't know what it is about being within the empire or they don't know the US is an empire. I don't know, but those who quote unquote people who would say they're on the left have such a callous attitude to imperialism. Is that something you've noticed as well? Or am I just looking from outward perspective as in looking in? Yeah, no. And, and I mean, I've noticed it too. Like, I mean, here, here in Canada, we have a similar attitude and a lot of my comrades are like in the U S and sort of in the belly Mm -hmm. of the beast. Right. And so I've seen, I've been like watching this sort of 
situation with Cuba unfold for the last couple of weeks. And and I think I, I feel a lot of the frustrations that you feel in hearing kind of this the pseudo left or even sometimes like this actual left to yeah. make all these demands for like nuance, right? Um, I mean, I've, I've come to hate the word nuance so much yep. in the last month, right? And I think like I have a couple of thoughts on, on where I feel like some of that stems. And so, you know, I think first of all, like what I mentioned earlier is like there's a huge element and particularly in the United States who their only interaction with something that they understand as progressive politics is sort of this rise in like this social democratic trend. Mm. You know, you saw that with your AOCs and your Bernie Sanders, right? Who are like, you know, they, I mean, Sanders consistently, every time he's asked, you know, about being a socialist, he would say, well, no, 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 not like Cuba, like Denmark, like the Nordic models, right? And what he's doing consistently is he's differentiating between you know, the Nordic model and, and Cuba, which I think is right, is, is correct, right? The Nordic model is a capitalist model. And the Nordic model, actually, the way that, that, that they can afford to grant citizens so many rights and, and good wages and a lot of public services is via their, through their imperialism, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And so, and so it makes sense that Bernie Sanders is, is not an anti-imperialist because his entire capitalist model actually is contingent on the pillaging of the global South. And so I think you have all of these sort, sort of baby leftists, these sock dems in particular coming out of places like the U.S. who are like, you know, they're upset that the United States is not sharing its wealth um, with its citizens, right? They're upset that Bezos is rich, but they're not, you know, they're not asking the questions of like, why is America wealthy? Well, America is wealthy because Iraq is poor or America is wealthy because Libya is poor. Like they're not actually, they don't care why America is wealthy. And if they could have a little bit more of a cut, right? If they could just have some healthcare and some social services, they wouldn't, they would be happy, you know? And I think that that's sort of one of the biggest mistakes that we can make, I think is allowing us to characterize those folks as really being like on the left, right? Because I think those are people who are still committed to the capitalist project, right? And so I think the left has to begin at anti-capitalism and it has at, to begin at the bare anti-imperialism. minimum, please. At yes. the bare minimum. <laughs> and, Honestly, and anti-imperialism, yeah. Honestly, and I and I think I think I don't know what it is. And this is not to I don't know I don't want to name and shame people. But I think there needs to be a, when we say certain phrases, we need to think of its logical conclusion. What I mean by that is, if we say Black Lives Matter in the US, in Canada, in the UK, a lot of it sounds like Black Lives Matter where I am right now, as opposed Mm -hmm. to globally. And why I say that is because Black Lives Matter, but then you would, you celebrate iPhone bringing out a case or bringing out some kind of celebratory, you know, culturalist turn on Black culture. When iPhone's whole project depends on the mining of cobalt from children, from child labor in Congo, for example. Exactly. You know what I mean? So I'm talking like, is it Black Lives Matter? When I say Black Lives Matter, and I should hope everyone means it globally. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah. So if someone was to ask you, why do you think it's important then we have to be anti-imperialist? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think right, it's, it's like an absolute bare minimum. I think like Evo Morales sort of said, you know, like it doesn't matter if you are, if you call yourself progressive, if you're not anti-imperialist, you're not actually progressive, right? And I think when you're like, especially when you're like 
you know, situated in like the belly of the beast, right? You're in the imperial core. The anti-imperialist position is so critical because otherwise you cannot be in solidarity and, and in joint struggle with people from the global south, right? I mean, I always think to this piece by, by Huey Newton where he, he sent a letter to the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam. And he mm-hmm. in that letter, he's offering to assist the troops of the National Liberation Front in their fight against American imperialism by actually sending troops. So, you know, the Panthers sent troops over to fight against American empire, right? And, you know, in that letter, he says that the Black Panther Party uh, gives up all of its claims to nationalism because the United States, he says, is not a nation, but an empire, right? And he Mm. talks about the way in which the U.S. has sort of pillaged the global south and, you know, all of these things. And he contrasts that with the nationhood of the global south, where he says, you know, the global south, the exploited people and countries, they're fighting for nationalism because they're fighting for self-determination and this a place where they can actually protect themselves from imperialism, right? And so mm-hmm. I think there's like this Western chauvinism, right, that we see so frequently on in the, the left of the imperial core. And it manifests in all these different ways. One of the ways that, that it manifests is, of course, like, you know, the social democratic kind of trend that, that we were discussing. But another way that it, it manifests is through like, this equation of all nationalism, right, as being the same. So like the nationalism of the U.S. is the same as the nationalism of Cuba. You know, therefore, the police of the U.S. equal are the same as the police of Cuba. And I saw these kinds of takes coming out, right, where like there was no distinction between the Cuban state, which is, you know, a a socialist state, an imperfect socialist state, sure, but a state that has been very clear that it is working towards socialism and that has been like, really fighting this huge bully just north of its waters. And and people were equating that to the American state. And I think there needs to be an understanding of how the nationalism of the oppressed is very different than the nationalism of the oppressor. And we, and we need, like, that is such an important piece for us to be able to expect, extend solidarity and, and to see ourselves as being, you know, internationalists in the struggle against imperialism and colonialism and capitalism. And I think without that, we are going to be in the position continuously where the left in the imperial core is trying to distance itself from the left of the global south and is going Absolutely. to fail at being able to build international solidarity. Thank you for that. I think that's a very important intervention because well, what we're essentially saying that all nationalism isn't the same. I mean, what, you know, the nationalism of those who stormed the capital <laughs> or Trump supporters or those in the imperial core is completely different to self-determination projects in, on the continent, for example, or in the Middle East and places mm-hmm. like that. Very important intervention. So let's talk about some things you might hear and a lot of the time. We hear China is imperialist. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of that brings us back to that, like, really important piece on what is imperialism, right? And and so if we accept that China is is socialist, and, and I would argue yeah. that China is socialist, I mean, I think that, you know, there are clearly capitalist penetrations, but that it's ultimately still a socialist country, then it cannot yeah. be imperialist in the way that we understand imperialism via Lenin's framework. And so that kind of brings me back to that really important piece. I think China has one military base, you know, and so just to like put put that all into context, right? This idea that China is imperialist, I think is actually coming, especially from like a lot of Western anxiety about, about China. We see sort of the way in which 
the anti-China rhetoric has really dominated American foreign policy. I mean, when when Biden stepped into office, or I think it was at the the confirmation of uh, Blinken, you know, Blinken commended Trump's policy on China. You know, he said Trump had it wow. right on China. And so you see like this pivot that has been happening for the past little while, slowly from the Middle East, focused on, on China specifically. And I think it's really important that we understand that you know, a lot of the the sort of fear mongering, particularly about China, the Orientalism, right? The the way in which there's like this culture of, of fear. You know that I mean, we even saw that with with COVID nineteen and sort of the the way in which it's been either called uh, intentionally, you know, the the Chinese virus and things like that, yeah, or even. Exactly. Or even or even some of the conspiracy theories around like the originate, like where the virus originated, which which are are now being perpetuated by the Biden administration. Right. Which I think, you know, just to make like a really little quip here is that it's interesting. You know, people like to pretend that the U.S. is like this two party state, that there's like this this healthy (laughs) democracy in the U.S. But when you look at, you know, Trump's China policy and Biden's China policy, you actually don't really see a difference at, at all, right? And arguably Biden's yeah. policy is going to become more hawkish as time goes on. And so, you know, I think that that's why those definitions of imperialism are really important. But also yeah. I think that, you know, it's China such a wonderful example of how the United States is not actually a democracy, but it's just this like one, it really is just one, one it's a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. I think that's the best way to sort of describe hundred percent. And you know what's so funny about that? People a lot of the time will talk to me and, and you know, sometimes in good faith, sometimes more often than not uh, in bad faith will engage on my platforms and be like, oh, Cuba is dictatorship. It's a one party system. And I'm like, oh, do you do know that almost 80% of the population voted for constitutional reform two years ago? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get 80% of the population in the US voting in elections. Then I said, then, oh, then they say things like, oh, China, one party system. I said, yes one party but they are there's obviously debate within that party of how to do things and i said ironically you people are talking from talking from the perspective of living in america let's be honest i mean for me for all intents and purposes america is a one-party system definitely when it comes to foreign policy foreign policy is one party maybe i mean yes okay internally uh, the domestic policies may differ a little bit it may differ on okay on when it comes to welfare, when it comes to certain investments, ideological underpinnings of you know how we redistribute wealth internally might have a might have a slight difference, but for all intents and purposes, it's a duopoly, and definitely on a on a foreign policy level, it's a one party state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and you know I think it's so interesting when we talk about like something like democracy, right? And and we don't, I mean. Like we saw this right coming from the American left in particular, but also like the Canadian left. And I think like more broadly, the Western left, right? This idea of Cuba as a dictatorship, right? And we don't often like unpack the way in which like, you know, democracy is something that we understand and construct in direct like juxtaposition to regimes, right? You know, or or dictatorships, Mm -hmm. right? And so much of that is rooted in like Western exceptionalism and and chauvinism, right? And so, you know, who gets described as democratic and who gets described as authoritarian or dictatorial? You know, who gets called a regime and who gets called a government? I think I saw, I, I wish I could remember which news source it was in, but, you know, this, they called the Batista regime a government, 
and Castro's <laughs> government a regime, right? In the same sentence. And so, wow. like you said, you know, Cuba has this really healthy democratic process with local elections that involve youth and community members. They don't allow any kind of corporate donations for elections, right? And yep. you contrast that with you know, the US, which like we said, is like this dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, or you could contrast that with Germany, which has had since 2000, the year 2005, one head of state. So in that time, Cuba has had three heads of state. And so there's like this really strange kind of juxtaposition between dictatorships and democracies that is like extremely rooted in Western exceptional or American exceptionalism, especially. And one other thing that I've really been sitting with and unpacking a lot lately, right, is the discourse on Cuba and democracy. So when we say that the United States, you know, when the United States says we want to bring democracy to, you know, insert country name, we as the yep. left really can quickly understand that, okay, well, that's just code for imperialism. Like we saw the way yep. that manifested in Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and others. And so what's remarkable, though, is that Western leftists have literally adopted the same discourse, you know, of these countries being undemocratic and needing democracy. And so while they pose their position as being very distinct from imperialism and oftentimes they cloak it in the language of nuance of you know well mm-hmm. cuba cubans want democracy but yes we also need to lift the embargo right they're still ultimately like asserting this western idea that country x needs democracy and what it yeah. does is it ultimately manufactures consent for the state and imperialists to do their work of spreading that you know quote unquote democracy absolutely a, a, a slight shift and I maybe, I mean, I didn't actually intend to speak about this, but something that kind of bugged me, and maybe you can speak to this further and feel free to correct me or come push back about what I'm about to say. But I saw many people who were pro-Syrian protesting against Assad, obviously. And I, and just for full disclosure, and I think people have criticized me actually in support of the, the protesters in Syria. But then when the people, quote unquote, protesting, and I call it, I call it in air bubbles right now, air quotes right now, protesting in Cuba, people were saying, Oh, the same people who were supporting, who are anti-Assad, were saying, listen to the protests in Cuba. You know, we, we have to listen to the protests. And, and I, was, I don't know, I was a bit shocked. I was thinking, I don't know, if there's kind of exporting of, of, of a blueprint from one country to another. It doesn't always fit quite well to me. The circumstances of Syria are much different, are very different to circumstances in Cuba. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's also, like, there's this refusal to understand that like okay so i think i think this actually stems from this like homogenization of the global south in this really strange Mm -hmm. way that denies them the analysis of class relations or diversity of political opinions so i know we saw that a lot with cuba when they were saying well center cuban voices and like the cuban voices they were talking about were miami cubans right and so but like we never say that when it comes to the united states so we don't say like listen to American voices, because we understand that like, you know, during on January 6th, right? I mean, it would have been absurd for a media outlet to say, we, we, you know, we need to center American voices, because you would understand that there's a segment of the of, of the United States that's part of this insurrection that has a particular political opinion. And we understood that that inter- insurrection was not progressive, right? So we understand in the US, right, that not all protests, not all actions are progressive and that some are reactionary. And I think because we hold this chauvinism of the global South, 
which relegates it, but especially socialist or anti-imperialist countries as being like inherently reactionary or like countries that are lacking progress. We see any kind of movement, any kind of gathering of people to protest in yes. the global south as being progressive, even when they're reactionary, because we've, we've relegated to the global south to like this reactionary entity, right? And so, you know, I think that, that that's a huge piece of the conversation that still hasn't like, hasn't really been discussed amongst like huge elements of the left is like, how, how can we interrogate how we understand the global South? Why are we so hell bent on these sort of depictions of the global South as being this like reactionary place to the point where any sort of protest that happens in the global south, we immediately as assume that that is something of progress. Yes. I, I really think we're kind of beguiled or, you know, made confused by the aesthetic of, of protest, isn't it? As if to say any protest or any uprising or any, any kind of demonstration is somehow a synthesis or representation of the will of the people, no matter mm -hmm. where it occurs. And I find, that very, I find it very strange. And again, you make the very important intervention. We recognize it when we see it in our own countries, but somehow when we see it in the global South taking place, it's like, oh no, we have to listen to people. I'm thinking, yeah, but okay. I mean, this is, um, it might get me in trouble, but do I care? The kind of recurring tweet I'm sure you've seen is, this is why Castro put your granddaddy in the blender. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> because for me, it's true. And I think, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, full disclosure again, those who know me, I called my account the last week a stan account of Castro and, and I recognize <laughs> an, an imperfect human being. But I said, I think it takes again from the left of Castro. I thought, you know what? There's, they, there's, there's definitely people from the leftist figures in communist experiments who, you know, for want of a better word, are problematic, <laughs> you know, in yeah. terms of like, you know, in terms of how we assess them. And even if we look at the leftist leaders amongst themselves. We know Castro had some issues with Mao, for example, and the Sino-US, you know, Sino split. Mm -hmm. And whatever, we can talk about this. And we'll talk about, you know, where Mao went, fell short and where Mao did great. You know, Lenin, who, you know, I'm a fan of. But obviously, other figures as well who are quote-unquote problematic. Mm -hmm. But when I, I thought, I don't know, I kind of felt, maybe let me know what you think. I felt Castro was an easy one to be on the side of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree. No, I, you know what? I completely agree. And actually just a really quick note that I think, again, I think this is, this is Newton that has this incredible sort of piece on like revolutionary critique and reactionary critique, right? So there's always yeah. room for revolutionary critique of revolutionary figures and parties in a way that helps us progress the goals of, of the left. But then reactionary critique is not something that we should be holding space for. But, yes. you know, I completely agree. But I thought that Cuba was, the easiest. I mean, Cuba's the easiest project to defend, frankly, right? I mean, yes. when you look at sort of the accomplishments of Cuba, when you look at its healthcare, when you look at the fact that they've essentially, you know, er near eradicated houselessness, and when you look at Cuba's role uh, in the world, right? Like they they sent fighters um, to fight against South African apartheid, you know, they, yep. they've supported Palestine consistently. I mean, Cuba has played this like incredible revolutionary role. And so I thought it was really scary to see Western leftists failing on the question of Cuba. And it gave me so much anxiety thinking about like, what does it mean for the future when we're going to, you know, likely only see 
heightened aggression towards, say, for example, Iran, where there's not only like a lack of socialism in Iran, but also there's this high degree of Islamophobia in the West. And so how much will the Western left fail in combating imperialism against Iran when they couldn't get it right, even on this this socialist project of Cuba? Or even I'm thinking to like the anti-imperialist position on Libya. Like, I mean, that was a really, really lonely time for anti-imperialists because so much of the Western left just fixated on Gaddafi. And they drew from these really Orientalist depictions of Gaddafi and, you know, of people of the global South, and particularly Libyans as being unable to govern, right? A lot of that kind of falls into the Orientalism that we see on the question of of dictatorships. And it really quickly manufactured American consent for the destruction of Libya, right? And so you know, the, that's why anti-imperialism is like the the minimum, because we're supposed to be anti-imperialist regardless of who we're dealing with or whether the country in question is what we, some might call, you know, actually existing socialism. And yeah. so when you can't even get it right on this tiny island that the U.S. has been starving for 60 years that has, despite yeah. that, managed to have all these wonderful accomplishments, you know, it's it's a scary time to think about what that's going to Honestly. look like. Mm-hmm. No, honestly, I was I was proper confused because I thought to myself, wait a minute. Again, I recognize the problematic figures historically, and I think thank you for mentioning the revolutionary uh, critique aspect. But I thought for me, Castro is such an easy one to defend. I mean, this is a man who I mean, there wasn't an anti-imperial struggle or anti-colonial struggle that took place on the continent that Castro didn't support almost every, almost every turn, <laughs> you know, almost at every turn. So I kind of thought, yeah, it was a bit, of, it was a bit of a scary one seeing the reactions. I mean, before we started today, you mentioned that you you have like an interest in Syria. What do you think about the charge? And I think it, I, I don't agree with this charge, but if you and I know I know where you're gonna, I think I can kind of almost preempt what where they're gonna go. But people say. If you support, if you don't support Western intervention, this is people on the left, by the way. If you don't support Western intervention in Syria, you're somehow an Assadist or pro-Assad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so so interesting how like the term Assadist has sort of become like this this insult, right? And you know, nobody wants to be called an Assadist, so you're like tiptoeing. People are trying to avoid the conversation of Syria, right? And I think like. Ultimately, right, the way that I see it, I mean, at this point, you know, I, I've been called an acidist, I've been called a tanky, right? I've been called all of these these things. And I'm like, <laughs> well, okay, but hold up, you know, like Assad, in particular, you know, the, the Assad family from the father to Bashar have have been historically very, you know, anti-communist, right? They have been yeah. sort of not, they have never really been friends of, of the Syrian left. It's actually why the Syrian left is so weak. And Assad's father historically was not anti-imperialist. I mean, I'm Lebanese and Palestinian, and so my yeah. family understands the role that Ahaf has played in, in the Lebanese civil war as not a, a progressive figure. And so, you know, as somebody who has a lot of, I think, important critiques of Assad, right? It's quite frustrating because I just, I don't understand, you know, how having an anti-imperialist stance and saying what's happening in Syria is an imperialist aggression, right? This this has yeah. been for, for many years, 
this major imperialist aggression. Uh, we've had, you know, the, the funneling of weapons from Israel and, and via Turkey and all these places to destabilize Syria. Saying, I mean, we, we're just calling that what it is, right? And you cannot say, you cannot sit on in, in the middle of imperialism. You can't say, well, you know, I'm against imperialism and against Assad, so I'm going to stay complete, completely quiet on Syria. Well, right now in Syria, the primary contradiction is imperialism, right? The, mm. Much of what's happened in Syria has become sort of this reactionary imperialist movement, even though that's not really how it began. And so we have to deal with the material realities of what's happening on the ground. And we also have to like be, you know, brutally honest about what does imperialism look like and what will it mean for Syria if Syria falls to the imperialists, right? And I think, you know, mm-hmm. Iraq is is a really great example and, and a heartbreaking one because Actually, in the case of Iraq, it was very similar. The American left, I mean, you had the small mobilization of of people who were against the war. But I do think that you had a lot of folks on the left sort of fixated on Saddam, right? Really, really fixated on Saddam. And, you know, what we see now, right, in in Iraq, and I think, you know, actually, Nkrumah's analysis is is really helpful here. So what you see in Iraq now, uh, with the extreme US involvement in government is the sorry, is the extreme, you know, US involvement uh, in the government and internal security agencies. So, you know, now, if the US pulls out of Iraq, let's say tomorrow, we have the question, well, would Iraq be independent, right? So and so like via the imperialist aggression on Iraq, there was like the full restructuring of Iraq's economy. There was the allowing of full foreign ownership of Iraqi uh, state-owned assets. So about 200 state-owned enterprises, including electricity, telecommunications, and pharmaceutical industries were completely dismantled. Iraqi Mm -hmm. banks, mines, factories, they've all been shifted into foreign corporate ownerships. And most of them have moved their assets entirely out of Iraq. And so what was marketed sort of as this war against this barbaric dictatorial regime and, you know, this idea that the U.S. was spreading, you know, quote unquote democracy, a.k.a. capitalism, was this imperialist aggression for mass profits for any corporations able to enter, you know, formerly state owned Iraqi sectors. And it's resulted in these huge profits for military Mm. security and arms related industries. And so. Like we need to learn from the lessons of of the past and the present, right? I mean, Iraq is still is still in in this crisis. I mean, this isn't even something of the past, and we need to be be honest about what would happen if the Syrian government fell tomorrow uh, to you know these um, American American and imperialist backed. Um, rebel groups, right? I mean, the the days of there being sort of this independent rebel group of, of people who are upset at the government are, are now over. They're, you don't really have that in Syria anymore. These major okay. factions have really taken over, um, you know, and, and they're fully funded by imperialists. And so, you know, we have to be honest about what would happen if the government fell. And that doesn't mean that that position says that we support Assad and we want that government to stay in power forever, but rather we understand that it will be that much harder for any kind of progressive movement to ever win under uh, under a post fall like the, a fallen sort of Syrian government, right? Like, I mean, we see Libya right now, we see Iraq right now, we see the conditions mm-hmm. of what could have been left in those countries doesn't exist anymore. So we have to be honest about about the situation, and we have to learn from from history and understand that anti imperialism, you know, 
is so important. And, and it's all that we can do as people living in the imperial court. I mean, I could sit all day and critique Bashar al-Assad from my, from my comfortable home, right? I'm not, it's not going to change anything. But when, I, when we mobilize mass movements against imperialism in Syria, we could potentially change something which could eventually embolden an actual leftist movement in Syria. Okay, so what you're essentially saying is, um, so would you say the, the dynamic or the, the, what's the word, the movement which started the initial uprising has completely changed in Syria to what, to what it, for what it is today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, regretfully, it, it, it really has. Um, I mean, I would say the best way to sort of characterize it is, is the Syrian sort of revolution, the Syrian revolution was completely hijacked by, by imperialists. Wow. And I think, again, it's, it's, it's about being brutally honest, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people find it very difficult to have these conversations, but I think these conversations need to be had. And, and I think just to kind of end, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but if you haven't, I recommend it. And I recommend it all of my listeners. South of the Border, Oliver Stone's documentary in which he speaks about how Chavez got to power. If you want, I know some people like reading, some people like listening. If you like watching, that documentary details how America is as an imperial state and what is imperialism and what imperialism means for the material conditions of people in these countries. And if you, after watching that, you don't adopt an anti-imperialist take or posturing, I don't know what we will do it. Also mm-hmm. as well, you know, another, another book you can't kind of miss is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa yeah. by Walter Rodney as well. I think yeah. these are key kind of um, takes and sorry, key kind of texts or, or things to listen to or watch. Thank you so much, Yara. This has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, hope it's been okay for you. People, please hit up Yara on socials. I know she's on Clubhouse a lot as well. If you want to speak to her further, I'm not sure if she will reply, but if she does, she's a great resource to have. Um, thank you so much once again. Um, and thanks for being on the Malcolm Effect. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And until next time, take care.